Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insights segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping medical treatments today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Varelli, and I'm here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzer. Today, our guest is Dr. James Coates. James is the Principal for Health and Human Performance at Decisive Point an East Coast venture capital firm that invests in and supports startups that have deep tech with government use cases. Decisive Point invests in a variety of sectors, including security, health, energy, and infrastructure. Prior to Decisive Point, James was at Bain Capital Life Sciences, where he completed diligence and technical landscaping efforts for different therapeutic areas and medical devices. James holds a PhD in cancer drug discovery an MSc in Radiation Biology and Oncology, both from the University of Oxford. And he completed a fellowship at Harvard Medical School and Mass General, where he investigated combinatorial strategies for antibody drug candidates for the treatment of breast cancer in collaboration with several industry and academic partners. James, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, we're really interested in your background, and I think it's uh, particularly unique. And, and on the Hopkins Biotech podcast, we like to showcase uh, different ways that people have gone from academia to industry. I'm a little bit interested to hear first, though, about your current position uh, and, and where you stand at, at Decisive Point and, and some of the work that you do there. Sure. Yeah. Happy to talk about that. So as principal for health and human performance at Decisive Point, my job really is to identify, invest, and support founders that have really innovative technologies uh, across the health and life sciences. I want to backtrack a little bit. So obviously, in the intro, we mentioned you had a long career at the University of Oxford and then at Harvard Medical School. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what your thinking was around with this long, you know, academic career at these amazing institutions, kind of what made you switch directions and go into private equity and VC? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, during my time at Harvard Medical School doing my fellowship, I was exposed to really amazing science. Uh, Small and and medium-sized biotechnology companies were coming to Mass General, coming to Harvard Medical School to execute their clinical trials and to seek guidance, support on both regulatory affairs, but also really clinical trial design. So I had this absolutely fantastic view of the Boston life science ecosystem. And then something really unpredictable happened in 2020, the pandemic. And you know, as a result, the biotech industry also did something unpredictable. It absolutely skyrocketed. So before you knew it, um, all the companies that I was working with really got acquired. And what that kind of suggested to me is that there, there's a world, a really dynamic and evolving world out there beyond just academic life sciences. And so my transition from Harvard Medical School to Bain Capital was really in pursuit of those companies, trying to see what was happening in the private sector and trying to understand how investors think and what's going on out there on the private and public markets. Yeah. So you have this experience uh, at Bain Capital Life Sciences from the private equity lens What was that like in transitioning to join uh, a a more early stage VC firm uh, from, you know, thinking about some of the differences and and maybe some of the similarities that you observed? And and what was it that actually uh, led you to to make that switch? 
Sure. So one really amazing thing with private equity is that you learn how to encapsulate quantitatively the potential opportunity of a therapeutic or a medical device. This is in the context of life sciences. And I found that a really, really interesting use of both my time and professional career, learning to quantitatively evaluate different opportunities. Fundamentally, though, I realized fairly early on that I wanted to go earlier in the ecosystem and help founders that are still deeply involved in their science, build out their teams, help with their R&D roadmap, help with fundraising, and get more intimately involved in those science ventures as they go from zero to one. Can you tell me a little bit more about the firm? I know we briefly prefaced it in the intro, but for anyone who's not familiar. Absolutely. So Decisive Point is a really unique firm. Um, Although we make investments across different areas, security, health, energy, infrastructure, our USP, our unique selling point or or, uh, secret sauce, if you will, is really that we're able to help founders across these different domains by getting them non-dilutive capital from the U.S. government. And what that means is, is that the technologies that we invest in really have to have some importance, some relevance to government. A good example in the health space is no cold chain storage mRNA vaccines, right? There's clearly a brilliant commercial viability to that across the globe, but there's also vested U.S. government interest in that type of technology. So that's something that we would look at through a lens of an investor. And if everything checks out, wonderful. But then we can also go the extra mile as a firm that has such deep government expertise and help them to get capital and support from the U.S. government for their R&D roadmap to expand and grow faster than they would have otherwise. Yeah, I think we want to come back to that idea of uh, harnessing non-dilutive funding in this space uh, and how it relates to traditional VC. But the way that you're talking about it makes it seem like Decisive Point really invests at uh, early stage companies. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. So we tend to play and invest at the stages where we can have the most impact, both with the equity that we're able to take and the capital in exchange for that, but also where non-dilutive funding can be the most used. And what that means is if you talk about you know magnitude, Uh, of the grants and contracts that are typical for early stage innovations in the US, those can be anywhere from 200,000 up to one or 2 million. That's really most useful for seed and and potentially pre-seed and series A companies. So as a result, that typically defines where we invest. And thinking in particular about the area of health and human performance, what's the perspective of a company that is really far from the clinic And how do they think about going from zero to one and and funding early stage research when, as you put it, you're really at sort of the edge of the innovation space? Yeah, so I think two things. One is you need to have a roadmap, no matter how early or late you are, how transformative, how innovative a, a company you are. So you need to think about your roadmap. And then once you have your milestones in place, you can think about how to parcel up your R and D to actually be funded through grants or contracts from the government. And that could mean NIH funding, but that could also mean Defense Department funding for different aspects as well. 
I guess maybe because I'm I'm also not very familiar with this area. What are the different kinds of, I guess, government? Uh, you mentioned a few just now. Like, obviously, I think most people know about NIH funding. But where are some of these other grants coming from? And typically, what kinds of technologies are they for? It's specific to like the health and human performance space. Yeah, so every government agency, stateside, abroad, in space, have a vested interest in human health, one way or another. And I think the pandemic probably illustrated that, if not underscored it even further. What that means is each government agency, to a degree, will support health, call it health and human performance or life sciences, uh, R&D for companies in some capacity. And so the corollary to that is if you have a technology and you're a startup and it's in biotech or med tech, what you want to do is you want to figure out what agency is most aligned to your value proposition. That's going to be your easiest route to tapping non-dilutive capital. And the agencies and their mandates and their interests across the health space can vary dramatically. So it's worth taking some time to think about that deeply. Of course, the NIH, these broad agency announcements are always going to be a great option. But you might find, for example, that PTSD diagnostics are something that the Air Force really like to fund. So are these opportunities that sort of the, the government agencies that are relevant will post and you're sort of responding? Or are there any aspects of you actually working with agencies to say, hey, we, we really think that this should be top of mind and we think that there should be some sort of request for proposal for this area of interest. What, what sort of influence do you have uh, in the reverse? Yeah, absolutely spot on. So we use two approaches, bottom-up and top-down. The bottom-up approach is where we respond to requests from the government for different technologies. But that's predicated on the government knowing what technology they are seeking or understanding that they have a problem that needs to be solved to begin with. So the other way around, top-down, is one that we also use. That's where we respond to a request for information from the U.S. government. And that can be from any agency, from defense through to health. And we actually explain in a very short few hundred words what the issue is. We draw their attention to it, and then we propose a solution. And occasionally, what can happen is that you do inadvertently, or intentionally rather, create an opportunity that comes along later that you can then apply to in a competitive environment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it seems as though you're sort of opening up the space for these really early stage technologies because there, there's not as much focus on them because fewer people are working on them. Um, I, I'm wondering from sort of a, a startup finances perspective, and for our listeners that may not be as uh, familiar with, with the way that startup companies are financed, what are some of the advantages of uh, these non-dilutive fundings from non-traditional sources? Yeah, great question. So there's really two main advantages. One is you don't have to dilute your shareholder base to get some cash for particular R&D milestones to extend your runway, whatever it may be. And you know, in challenging macroeconomic conditions like a market downturn that we're having right now for biotech, that can be a great idea. It also makes for really, really great headlines as well for your startup because you've just competitively got some funding from different government agencies. At the same time, though, getting capital, whether it be a contract or a grant from the government, 
It also allows founders and your technology to have exposure to key government stakeholders from across the federal market. And what that may do is later on, you could have one of those stakeholders actually champion your technology internally to land an even larger R&D contract or grant down the line. And I guess, too, from your perspective as you know a funder and you're also playing an advisory role, what's the advantage for the VC firm in that case? Yeah, so the advantage for uh, a venture capital firm to really want to support their portfolio companies in getting non-dilutive capital is one whereby they don't actually need to return to us and ask for more money. They can accomplish milestones on their own with that non-dilutive capital. And so you're kind of getting at an interesting point, I think, where whereby those milestones that they've the company has submitted a grant for, they really need to overlap quite closely with the ultimate commercial trajectory of the company. Because otherwise, what you can get is you end up spinning your wheels with grant funding and not advancing towards your ultimate commercial goal, which is in everyone's interest. Yeah, to that point too, I'm sort of wondering where the journey to non-dilutive funding ends. So at what point do you take a company and say, okay, well, you're ready for additional rounds of venture funding or you know, possibly a company that might go public? Um, what's, what's sort of the end stage for a company coming out of this non-dilutive funding cycle? Yeah, great question. So I think there's two ways to look at it. One is by dollar value, probably after series A or B, the size of checks that the government's going to be writing is are not going to be quite as relevant for companies that are raising you know, Series C, for example, especially in the therapeutic space. Having said that, the NIH in particular have some really amazing programs to support clinical development. That goes for early stage clinical trials, but also for phase two and three and beyond. And so those can be appealing and come with larger dollar amounts to a variety of firms that are also going to be larger. So a lot of our audience base is early career researchers and scientists. And I know we're kind of digging more into general topics around, you know, VC and financing here, but I'm wondering too, I think a lot of people might be familiar again with like traditional NIH, maybe grant reviewer type structures and career paths. But in terms of the more uh, other government agencies like DARPA or, you know, finding grants or doing something like what you do, which is specific to government funding. How do you gain experience in that field or what kinds of other opportunities are available working in that space? Yeah, interesting question. So I think, you know, first off, opportunities for non-dilutive capital are always published online. So whether you're a small business or you're a postdoctoral fellow looking to get that initial bundle of funding to actually put an idea into practice, you can find every competitive opportunity online. So that, that's the first thing. Second of all, I think when you do enter into a startup, there is gradually, this is growing, but there's an increasing interest in non-dilutive capital. And that, that's accentuated in challenging economic environments like the one we're going through right now. So I think it comes naturally to a degree whereby people involved in startups are finding ways to maximize their, their equity investments. And non-dilutive is a great way to do that. Yeah, I, I really, I think, appreciate that uh, sort of 
process of identifying government grants in grad school might actually sort of lend itself to identifying where these grants sit for private companies. So that, that's really interesting. Um, Decisive Point also works with accelerators like the National Security Innovation Network, Propel. And I'm wondering if briefly you can explain more generally what an accelerator is and what it does for somebody who might not be familiar with accelerator programs. And then if you could touch on maybe what the National Security Innovation Network Propel program is in particular, and some of the intricacies and and why Decisive Point is so interested in in that uh, accelerator. Yeah, happy to. So the objective of any accelerator or incubator or studio or I even heard Elevator a little while ago. The idea is to assist founders in moving their technology and or their business forward to some degree in some manner. For some health or life science companies, that might mean providing lab space free of charge so that they can, the founders can conduct some type of proof of concept experiments to show future investors that actually their, their theory works. While for others, it might mean mentoring founders and the team on business practices and fundraising. So I I think the definition can vary, but it does mean that you're providing resources to teams and helping them move forward in one capacity or another. In terms of Ensign Propel, um, Decisive Point has for two years now supported the Defense Department in Ensign Propel. And that's an accelerator program that we run And what it entails is bringing founders with really innovative technology and putting them interfacing with government stakeholders who are interested in those technologies. And what happens is it actually allows technology transfer to occur from very early stage private companies to the government with a bit of support over the few months that we mentor them. I know you also work closely with um, another innovation ecosystem like MIT's The Engine. So can you briefly talk about what that is and why, again, you're aligned with it? Absolutely, yeah. So we work closely with a number of different ecosystems um, and in a number of different capacities. So for some of these ecosystems, that means helping companies identify the most relevant government stakeholders or opportunities to go after, while in others, it means putting on seminars for which federal funding agencies have what particular type of vested interest across the health space, let's say. For MIT's The Engine, we're very light touch, but we do help them with identifying opportunities and supporting companies as they navigate the federal landscape. Yeah, and again, kind of going from the VC angle, what benefit is there or what incentives are there for firms to kind of get involved with, you know, especially these academic accelerators too? Yeah, so... When venture capital groups, and we're no exception, uh, work with universities and these types of ecosystems, um, fundamentally, we get exposure to technology and high caliber teams that we wouldn't otherwise necessarily have access to. Also, I think universities have peer-reviewed publications and grants that in some way provide an element of de-risking in a manner to also make it more attractive to early stage venture. So I, I suppose this, the answer is fairly simple. In my mind, at least, it's high-quality people and impactful science is, is why we're involved with a number of universities, including MIT. So we've talked about sort of technology innovation very generally. Are, are there any particular technologies that you're really excited about and areas within MIT's The Engine or, or uh, Ensign 
that uh, you, you think will be really innovative uh, in the next you know, 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, so I think I see two main verticals emerging in my line of work. The first one is synthetic biology. And that's probably no surprise to anybody who's in the biotech or the life sciences these days. And that ranges from, again, mRNA technology, but also RNA-based aptamers and even DNA-based aptamers, um, and far beyond that as well. So there's synthetic biology on the one hand, and then on the other, there's neurotechnology that we see a lot of, and that is inclusive of diagnostic neurotechnology, but also brain-computer interfaces, and also more invasive neural probe technology. Think Elon Musk's Neuralink, for example. So these are really the two main camps that we see coming up through our pipeline more and more. And so it's a place that we're spending a lot of time learning more about the science and trying to understand how these technologies and innovations are actually going to grow into the world over the next five to 15 years. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I'm wondering, too, if you have any other advice for grad students interested in you know, private equity or VC uh, or any grad student that's kind of interested in deep tech and and these really edge case innovations that might not be top of mind right now, but but may be very important in that 5, 10, 15 year range? Yeah, so I think the main thing is to find key champions that are going to support you both, you know, within the university, for example, or within your place of employment, but also outside, friends, family, whatever it may be. I think sometimes it's very difficult to contemplate what the world's going to be like in 10 to 15 years. But if you have a deep belief in a particular type or flavor of technology, and you certainly have the expertise to be able to push that forward, then what you want to do is you want to build a supportive environment to actually get there. And I think what comes of that are things like seeking out non-dilutive opportunities and writing persuasive grants and, and, and raising equity from investors. But I think it all really starts with believing in your idea and then finding a support structure to allow you to enable you to actually pursue it in real terms. Following up on that, you know, advice for founders where, especially with the pandemic, I think this is certainly harder, although that's probably shifting a bit going forward. Um, what are great ways for young founders, particularly those coming out of academic labs or, you know, recently completing their PhD? What are some ways that they can more easily connect to uh, VC firms? Yeah, so I think speaking on behalf of at least an emerging venture capital firm here on the East Coast, I think we're always happy to talk to companies and point them in the right direction. So I think what you need to do is you need to find that this kind of gets back to the supportive environment comment. You need to find people who are receptive to your technology and understand what you're doing. And then even if they don't have the investment mandate to actually move money and take equity, help you in that way, they can point you in the right direction. I think the worst thing to do probably is to not be speaking to people that are in the ecosystem, to hide away, whether that be in the lab or elsewhere, and to really just work on the technology. You have to be out there. You have to be externally facing sometimes, and you have to be talking to people to both get word of mouth out about your technology, but also you and your team and your idea. Yeah, James, thank you so much for enlightening us with uh, this really you know, great advice and for introducing us to Decisive Point. Uh, which I think is particularly unique uh, in the venture space. This was uh, a really great interview. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli. And I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening.